I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into our mission. Our mission at Crosspoint Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. I want more people to, we want more people to know Christ as their Savior, to give their, their life for Him and then live their life for Him so that more people will come to know Christ. We're going to conclude our series. We've been calling this, how, this series, How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. And how he does that is through the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's not that we're good, but we could be seen as good through what Christ did in our place when he paid for our sins on that cross. So with that, if you would open to the last chapter in the book of Romans, chapter 16, verses 1 through 23, a message I'm calling, People Matter. So, like I said, we're going to conclude the letter, this, this series through Romans. And in case you're wondering, I went back and I counted, and it's taken me 32 messages to preach through the book of Romans. And by most accounts, that's pretty fast. Um, I was listening to one pastor preach, and he said he preached 191 messages to get through Romans. I'm like, holy moly, that's a lot. One thing you can do as a pastor, you can wear your people out if you preach like that, if you preach that slowly. I mean, there's some good aspects, but there's also some bad aspects. And one reason I, I mean, I could have done that, but I've chosen not to do that. One reason is because I've given myself a goal. Nobody has given me this goal. This is only the goal that I put upon myself, but I want to preach through the entire Bible. I'm talking like Genesis to Revelation, everything in between, every chapter, every verse, every book of the Bible. I want to finish preaching the Bible, and my goal is to either do that before I retire or die, whichever one comes first. But I have a feeling I'm not going to make it, okay? I'm just being honest. I'm probably not going to make it. Uh, the book of Psalms alone is huge, and I've preached a handful of Psalms, but really I haven't scratched the surface, and so I have to pre- you know, pick up the pace if I'm even going to come close until you know, my preaching days are done. But we've been in the Romans for, for, for quite some time now, and Paul has taught us the greatest truths you will ever be taught anywhere in your lifetime, how we are all desperately wicked, and how we are tragically separated by God from God because of our sin. And if that's not enough, there is absolutely nothing we can do about it. There's no amount of being good that will ever undo our sin and make us right in the eyes of God. No amount of religion. No amount of just doing the do's and don't and don'ts and religion that tells you will ever address our sin problem and be capable of saving us from hell and making us fit for heaven. That's never going to happen. That's why God had to come. God, he robed himself in human flesh, and he came to this earth on a rescue mission. His name is Jesus. In case you didn't know, Jesus, he's God. That's why Jesus came to save us from our sins, and that has always been God's redemptive plan for mankind. Before the foundations of the world, it was the plan for that Jesus would come, and he would pay for our sins on the cross. That God had predestined us, he's called us, he's justified us, and there's coming a day in the future where God will glorify us. That's what we were taught in Romans 8.30. That God can and he will do this through the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's where we are accredited, we're accounted with the righteousness of Jesus when we place faith in what he did on that cross in our place because of our sins. And I know that's a mouthful, but that's what has happened to anybody that's called upon the name of the Lord. And now, Paul told us that we are to be living sacrifices. He told us that in Romans 12. That our our lives are not our own. That we belong to Christ since he bought us with the purchase price of his blood. 
That we are not ours, but we are his. And now we are obligated to do whatever he wishes, but there's a problem. The problem is we're still sinners. Our selfish desires get in the way for what is best for the kingdom of God. Okay? Living the Christian life, it's not easy because we're still sinners. It would be so much easier if God just gave us a checklist, a list of rules. Do the do's and don't the don'ts. Check off the boxes and you'll be good to go. But that's not what God did. You know, but if he had done that, the problem with that is that we'd have different rules. And then my checklist would be better, different than your checklist. But then what I would do in my sinful nature, I'd say, you know what? My checklist is so much better than yours. You need to keep, to keep my checklist. Because again, I know better than you. No, that's legalism. So in chapters 14 and 15, Paul has been telling us how to have unity despite having these different views on important topics And how we do that is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the gospel. If we can do that, if a church can keep the main thing, the main thing, be focused on the gospel, then there will be unity in the church. But if a church doesn't do that, then there's going to be divisions. Paul's already discussed that. And now we come to Romans chapter 16. And we're going to be given this list of names list of names of men and women that have been so important for the Apostle Paul. And Paul's going to list their names, and they're going to become famous. And I don't know this, but I think this. I think if Paul would have gone to them and say, hey, I'm going to mention you in this letter, and then you're going to become famous, and people are going to study about you and what I say about you for thousands of years to come. I don't know this, but I think they would have said, please don't, Paul. Please don't put my name on blast. I, I don't need you to mention to me. I just want to do what I want to do. But then Paul goes ahead and mentions them here. Now, not all the people that Paul mentions in this last chapter are necessarily humble people. We're going to read about this group of people that Paul says they're straight up evil. We're going to read these names in Romans chapter 16. And really, I think you can break them into three groups. Group number one is the people that are in Rome that Paul's writing to that got saved along the way sometime earlier, and now they're all on team Jesus or sold out for the sake of Jesus, and so Paul writes their name. And then there's this second group. There's this second group that are not on team Jesus. They're on team themselves. They're not about Christ, and Paul mentions them here. And then we're going to meet this group of people that are there with Paul in that moment as he pins this letter. And he's writing their names to to foster greatness, to encourage them, to give them a shout out to what they've done and what they've meant to Paul. If you don't know this, I'm one of the assistant football coaches for our Warland Warriors. And our week usually goes like this. On Monday, typically, there's a JV game. Uh, The JV goes to that game. I'm usually with that team. The varsity's at home practicing, getting ready. And then on Tuesday, it's all hands on deck. We're going to pad up. We're going to get ready. We're going to be hitting. We're going to be getting, doing what it takes to get better. And on Wednesday, it's another day like that. It's a hard day of practice. And then Thursday comes, and we tone it down a little bit. We're fine-tuning what we want to do so that we're ready for game day on Friday. At the end of practice on Thursday, every day we go into the locker room It's just us. We close the door. We do something we call the dig. And what we're going to do with the dig is we're going to go around the room and we're going to talk about the other members on the team and what they did that was great that week and how they they were just sold out for the sake of the team, that everything they were about, how they contributed to the team, it it leads to greatness of the team. And the reason we do that is because we want to foster greatness. We want to tell people what they're doing. They're making a difference. That are their benefit to the team. And we want to encourage them to do more. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. 
He's having his dig. He's giving a shout out to all these men and women we're going to read about because he wants them to keep doing what they're doing, but he also wants them to know that what they're doing matters. That what they're doing is not about themselves. It's about King Jesus. And he wants them to, to keep doing it, to not give up. That it's hard to live the gospel. Life is hard. To make your life about Jesus, it's not easy. So with that, let's go ahead and meet the people that Paul mentions. Read in Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I commend to you our sister, Phoebe, a servant of the church of Censoria, so that you may welcome her in the Lord in the way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. I have heard people badmouth the Bible. I've heard people with my own ears, they'll say, the Bible is misogynistic and the Bible puts women down. And to anybody that's ever said that, I would say, you've clearly never read the Bible. There is people that are, that are saying that, and then there's other people that are parent, parroting what somebody else said, and they want that to be true. It's not true, and they'll go ahead and say it, even though it isn't true, because they want it to be true, and they just say it, even though it's a flat-out lie. And if anybody ever thinks like that, I would encourage you, read the Bible for yourself, and you'll find out it's not true. Because who is the first person that Paul mentions in his dig? Who's the very first person that Paul gives a shout-out to? It's this, his sister in Christ, this gal named Phoebe. Her name is Phoebe, and she's from the port city of Sincorea. Sincorea is about nine miles from Corinth. What do we know about this area? Well, Corinth was about the most unchristian place you could possibly imagine. Okay? All sorts of unspeakable sins were common in this place. So clearly, this is the culture in which Phoebe is born into, and then she comes to saving faith in Christ, despite the wicked world she grew up in. And Paul tells us that she is a servant in the church at Caesarea. The word servant there is the word diakonos in the Greek. It's the word we get deacon from. So what Paul is saying, he says, hey, I want to give a shout out to Phoebe, who's a deacon at first, Baptist, Censoria. Clearly my paraphrasing there. I know this is something we don't talk about a lot in a Southern Baptist church, but I think that needs to be in the discussion. You know, women could hold the office of deacon because of Phoebe, who Paul talks about in, in Romans 16. Let me say, deacon is not an office of authority in the church. There's some people, they want to have that, that office because somehow they want to be something, but that's not what a deacon is. A deacon is a servant. You see, when somebody is a deacon, they're there not to direct, but to be directed. Pour their life out in service to the church. And please note, Paul isn't merely commending her here. He's not only saying, hey, Phoebe's doing a great job. He's also telling the church, including men, to come alongside Phoebe, to help Phoebe in what she's doing. You can't read Romans chapter 16 and not be impressed by the number of women that Paul mentions here. If the Bible is demeaning to women, if the Bible was truly misogynistic, then why is the foremost biblical expert, the Apostle Paul, telling men to come alongside this woman and help her in what she's doing? If the Bible was misogynistic, Paul should have wrote, hey guys, there's this gal, her, her name is Phoebe. We need to put her in her place. She's acting crazy. She's doing all this stuff. You need to put her where she belongs because she's getting out of order. That's not what Paul says. 
Paul says, hey, there's this gal. Her name is Phoebe, a woman. I want to mention how awesome Phoebe is and how she sold out for the sake of Christ. Come alongside and, and do what she is doing. Continue reading. Look in verse 3. Paul says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the, uh, the church in their house. If you turned in your Bibles and you turned to Acts chapter 18, you'd read more about this couple, Prisca and Aquila. Other versions of the Bible, it, it says their names are Priscilla and Aquila. So maybe that's a name that you are more familiar with. Well, this is a husband and wife team, and they're tent makers. The Apostle Paul met them in the, in the city of Corinth, you know, probably not all too far from where Phoebe's from. And Paul went to Corinth. He ran into this couple. He shared the gospel with them. They got saved, and they became this huge help to Paul and his ministry. And Luke tells us in the book of Acts that they were together for two years, and then they, they eventually left, and they went to the, the, the great city of Ephesus. This is where Paul went, and he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. And again, they took up the trade of tent making and opened a church in their homes. And they went with Paul, and they ministered to Paul, and they even risked their own necks for Paul, is what Paul tells us. I have to think it probably had something to do with the, the riot that broke out in Ephesus when Paul preached the gospel and everybody's leaving their false gods and turning to the one true God. This riot broke out and they tried to kill Paul. And the church was meeting in the house of, of this husband and wife team. And I have to believe that they received very real death threats because they're housing the apostle Paul. One thing that tells us is that the Christian life I'm talking the real Christian life. It's not always sunshine and lollipops. Because sometimes your life can go on the line if you're truly living your life for the sake of the gospel. And Paul mentions Prisca and Aquila here. Keep reading. Look in the middle of verse 5. Paul says, Greet my beloved Epineus, who was the first convert in Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Let me tell you something in case you don't know this. You need to know this. You'll never forget the per first person you lead to Christ. The, the very first person, if you ever lead somebody to Christ, you're never going to forget them. Because there's somebody, one second, they're going to hell. And the next second, they're made fit for heaven. It has absolutely nothing to do with you. It's 100% God. But then God used you to make it happen. That's something you're never going to forget. Well, for the Apostle Paul, it was a guy named Epineus. He was his first convert in Asia. His, Paul's first stop in Asia was Ephesus. So Epineus was most likely from Ephesus. But now he's in Rome. What's he doing there? Well, we don't know. Because Paul doesn't exactly tell us. But I have to believe he's into some pretty important mission work because Paul gives him a shout out here. And then Paul associates with Epineus this gal named Mary. Out of the first five people that Paul mentions in, in Romans chapter 16, three of which are women. That's interesting. But we know very little about Mary because Paul doesn't tell us a lot, but he does tell us that she's a hard worker. When I read about the apostle Paul, he is one of the most hardest working individuals I've ever read about. So if Paul calls you, says you're a hard worker, well then clearly you're a hard worker. Continue reading, look in verse 7. Paul says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen 
and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amplophilatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. You know, we don't know a lot about Andronicus and Junia, but we know that they're related to the Apostle Paul because Paul tells us that they're his kinsmen. I wonder, are they cousins? Are they second cousins, third cousins, twice removed? I don't know. But one thing we do know is that they're Christians. And we know that they've been, been Christians longer than Paul because Paul says they're in Christ before me. So if they're relatives of Paul and they're they know Paul, and, and they're related to him. They've been Christians longer than Paul. I just wonder if they were there at the stoning of Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, there's a young up-and-comer named Saul of Tarsus who later gets saved. He holds the coats of the, of the Pharisees as they take rocks so they can get a better wind-up and hit Stephen in the head. Saul of Tarsus, Paul was there. And since they're relatives of Paul, could they have been there too? And if they were there... Were they friends of Stephen? We don't know, but it's possible. And if that's how it played out, I just wonder, did they play a small part in their their cousin or whatever, Paul, coming to faith in Christ? Did they pray for Paul? Did they pray to the creator God of the universe, please save Saul of Tarsus, save Paul, change his heart, change his mind, please? We don't know if if that happened, but I have to think it might have happened. Some think that that this duo might have been another husband and wife team like Prisca and Aquila because the spelling of Junia's name might have an S on it. It might not. But whoever they were, they're relatives of Paul. And he plainly tells us this this here. And we're also told they, they, they shared a prison cell with Paul. Okay, well, we don't know a lot about that, but one thing we do know is that a prison cell in the, Middle East, in, in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, not exactly the plushest of accommodations, so they certainly bonded over this experience. So Andronicus and Junia, they're, they're relatives and cellmates of Paul. And then Paul mentions Aphlatatus. I read how there's a, in the cemetery, there's the, these catacombs in Rome. There's this one tomb. This, it is highly decorated, and there's one name on this, on this tomb, and it's the, it's the name of Amplitatus. Is this the same guy? Well, there's no way that we can know for, for certain, but maybe it is. And if it is the same guy, then based off of how ornate his, his tomb is, He definitely had a huge impact on the family that he left behind. And if it is the same guy, was the impact that he left behind based off of the gospel? Did he share the gospel with his his children and his wife and and those that are related to him? Did he share the gospel? And did he get saved because of this guy? We don't know for certain, but I think it's possible. And then Paul mentions Urbanus and Stachys. And really, we don't know anything more about them than their name. All we know about Urbanus is that he is Paul's fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys is is loved by Paul. That's not a ton of information on these two individuals, but again, consider who it is that's saying this about them. If you consider who it is that's speaking this about them, this speaks volumes to the type of men these guys were. I just believe that Urbanus was that guy that's always out on the street. He's always sharing the gospel. He's telling people about Jesus. And then Stachys was someone that was always concerned for the apostle Paul. And then there's this guy, Apelles. Paul says, who was approved in Christ. Think about this. If you were to pick out what's written on your tombstone, wouldn't that be cool to say, approved in Christ? 
One of the cooler things about this guy is what his name means. His, the name Apelles, it means called. So here's a man named called who is approved in Christ. Continue reading. Look in the middle of verse 10. Paul says, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. There's a Scottish theologian by the name of William, uh, Dr. William Barclay, and he's written extensively on the family of Aristobulus. Barclay says that Aristobulus was the grandson of King Herod the Great, and he lived in Rome. So that means Aristobulus, he's behind the scenes, politically speaking, make things happen, and I'm sure he's sharing the gospel. But he had a, a very close friend by the name of Emperor Claudius. If you don't know this, Emperor Claudius, he was the emperor at the time, but he was eventually assassinated by his stepson, somebody that we've already mentioned in this series, a man named Nero. And then when Aristobulus died, his servants became property of Caesar Nero. And we know that Nero was a wicked man. Maybe the most wicked men to ever lived. But what that tells us is that he's surrounded by believers. There's believers in all of his cabinets within different offices. And I, very, I think it's very possible these are the same people that Paul is referring to here. And then Paul mentions somehow that he is a relative of the Herodian family. So somehow Paul is related to the ruling Jews in Jerusalem. Paul also says uh, to greet those who belong to the family of Narcissus. They're, they're there. Barclay wrote also about the family of Narcissus, and he said that they were a personal secretary to Emperor Claudius. And so by Paul mentioning all these people, what he's saying is that the gospel, there's believers in all these different aspects of, of, the, of influence in the community. Can you see how the gospel is ready to explode across the Roman Empire at this time? Paul had such influence in his own life that he's sharing the gospel with his friends and his family members. So the gospel has penetrated all these cracks and crevices of the society and culture and it's ready to explode. Keep reading. Look in verse 12. Paul says, Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenia and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard for the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Paul mentions two workers in the Lord, two ladies by the name of Tryphenia and Tryphosa. These are two women that Paul wants to make a point to mention here in this, the closing verses is his great letter to the church of Rome. And what's interesting about them is the name, meaning of their names. Their names mean dainty and delicate. It's funny how Paul wants to mention these two workers and these two wonderful ladies, dainty and delicate, that, knew, that meant so much to him. We don't exactly know what their work was, but whatever it was, it left such an impression on the Apostle Paul that he makes a mention of two more ladies here. So many women having their names dropped by the Apostle Paul, how these women helped him for the sake of the gospel, and there's one more, Persis. Her name means Persian woman. So very likely, she was from what is modern-day Iran. And really, that's all we know about her. That she's a Persian woman and somehow she has helped the Apostle Paul in his mission work. And then in verse 13, Paul mentions a very interesting character, a guy by the name of Rufus. This is none other than the guy that's mentioned at the end of Mark's gospel who had a father by the name of Simon of Cyrene. And if you know your Bible, the name Simon of Cyrene, that's the guy that helped 
carried the cross of Christ to the, to the hill called Calvary. It was back on a day that we call, now effectually call Good Friday. Jesus was scourged not one time, but two times, and he was forced to carry the cross member. He would have left the Antonio Fortress down a narrow path, a street that's called Via Della Rosa, which means the way of suffering, out the Damascus Gate on the north side of Jerusalem and, and out to a hill called Calvary. It would have been about two and a half miles total. And somewhere along the line, Christ was too exhausted from the scourging and he, he couldn't carry the, the cross. So Simon of Cyrene is enlisted by, uh, by a, a, a Roman soldier. Well, we know that Cyrene is modern-day Libya. So North Africa is where this guy is from. And so could Simon of Cyrene been in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with the additional 150,000 people that would flock uh, into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover that time? I think it's very possible. And at some point, Simon of Cyrene, he's on the street. Jesus is coming by. He can't carry the cross. And a Roman soldier orders him to help. Picture it if you would, what that might have looked like. Was he shoulder to shoulder carrying the cross member? Did he take the whole cross, mem cross member and, and Christ would have been falling behind? Either way, he would have had the blood of Jesus on his back. And he carried it all the way to the hill called Calvary. And then he laid down the cross member. Did he see Jesus stretch out on that cross member? Did he see the Roman soldiers take nails and drive them into his hands? And did, his, did he see that? Very possible. Did he hear with his own ears Christ cry out and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Did he hear the centurion say, certainly this man is innocent as Luke records for us. Did Simon hear the centurion say, truly this was the son of God, as Matthew tells us. We don't know for certain, but very quite possibly he did. And if he did, was that what it took so radically changed this man that he became a follower of Christ? I think that's it. And now we read about his son Rufus and Rufus's mom, Simon's wife, that's like a mother to the apostle Paul. Did Paul ever meet Simon of Cyrene? There's nothing in scripture that tells us he did. But clearly he came to know his son and his wife. I just wonder what the conversations might have been like. Did Paul ever go to Rufus and say, Rufus, tell me about what your dad did the day he carried the, the cross so Jesus could pay for my sins? Did he say, hey, mom, tell me about what your, son, what your husband did the day he helped Jesus? Do you think having those two individuals telling stories about what Christ did, do you think that was an encouragement to the Apostle Paul? Whoever Simon of Cyrene was, he lived such a life that he would go on to have a son and a wife that would be so influential in the Christian faith that the great Apostle Paul would go to mention their names in the closing chapters of the book of Romans. Do you think that they're listed here because they were so influential that Paul just had to give them a shout out here at the end of Romans? I think so. Continue reading. Look in verse 14. Paul says, Greet Asyncritus, Pelagon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogius, Julia, Nerus, and his sisters, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. 
I don't know if this is the case, but I picture this the case. That we're going to find out that Paul is dictating this letter, and he's, he's dictating this letter to a man named Tertius. We're going to meet him in a few verses. And I picture Paul, he's probably pacing in a room somewhere in Corinth, and he's dictating the letter. And Tertius is, is feverishly trying to write down everything Paul is, is saying and I think there's all these names of, of people, the, these faces are flooding Paul, and Paul wants to make mention of every single one of them. He doesn't want to miss anybody. He wants to give them a shout out because what they meant to Paul. These lists of all these names are actually Greek names. So these are Greek men and women that got saved somewhere, most likely through Paul's ministry, and now they're in Rome. What are they doing in Rome? We don't know, but they're clearly sharing the gospel. They're clearly doing some sort of mission work. Maybe they're there in Rome on business, but now they're furthering the gospel with their testimonies. And so there's this group of believers. They're in Rome, and they're from somewhere else in the Roman Empire. We've already read about Simon, who's from North Africa. We've read about Persis, and she's from Iran. All these people from all different walks of life are all over the known world at this time. Are these individuals the, the reason why, if we turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 1, where Paul said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I have to believe that's, that's the reason. So many prominent Christians have penetrated society from top to bottom. Let me say this. That's the way the gospel should work. How it works is someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, and then they share their faith with someone who doesn't know Christ. And he does that, you do that with the people that you already know in your life. See, a person tells people in their lives what Christ has done for him or her, and that is how the gospel spreads. The gospel spreads best, not by some big function in the church, it's when somebody uses their relationships in their life to tell somebody about Jesus. Here's what I want to say about that. Don't wait for the church to have some big event and then just pray that your friend comes to that big event. No, what you and I need to do is we need to go tell people about Jesus. Don't make Jesus just something you do on Sunday. Make it something you do Monday all the way through Sunday, every day of the week where we're telling the people that God uniquely has in our life about Christ. So here's the application for you and me. We must take the time to tell people about Jesus. I know it can be scary, but God has you here for a purpose, and the purpose you're still here is to tell people about Jesus, to further the gospel. Until you share the gospel with people you, that don't know Christ, you'll never know your purpose in life. Can you imagine someone go their entire Christian life and never fulfill their purpose in life? This is what you should do. Share your testimony. Tell people in your life what Christ has done for you. Paul is telling about all these amazing people, all the positive impact they have had on the gospel. For 16 verses, Paul has been singing the praises about all these men and all these women who were totally sold out for the sake of Christ. All these people that are totally on team Jesus. But there's some not more people. There's some people that have harmed the gospel. Read verse 17. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such a person do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. 
And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. For the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is a very helpful passage on what to do about problems in the church. Because here, Paul is telling us about this group of professing Christians, but based off what Paul says, is most likely they're not Christians. They're very fake, they're phony, they're false believers. These people are not about leading people to the feet of Jesus. They're more about their own appetites, is what Paul says. These are people that use smooth talk and flattery to lead people away from the unity that the gospel should bring us together. You see, what happens is there are people, and they want to focus on one certain aspect of the church. Or maybe they just want to focus on one certain doctrine of the church. Maybe it's how the the church functions. And what happens is they have no room for people to disagree with them. And then what happens is they lead people astray away from the unity that should be brought together in the gospel. That's always the problem within the church when there's one particular thing that is more important than the most important thing. And the most important thing is people getting saved. Lost people coming to faith in Christ. That's the most important thing. You know, today there's churches that want to emphasize in speaking in tongues or prophecies. But whenever you focus on one thing that's not the main thing, what happens is there's always somebody that's going to disagree with you and that leads people astray. There's always these people that want to fracture the church and they want to lead people astray. And they always have this little band of followers that seems to be going with them. And you're thinking, why would anybody do that? Why is there anybody in the church that wants something more than people getting saved? Well, Paul says they do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They're not serving Jesus. They're serving themselves. Maybe it's somebody that's after money. You can see that with those that preach the prosperity gospel. Maybe it's influence and power within the community. Maybe it's somebody that really wants to be someone. What happens is it always hurts the gospel. The list goes on and on why somebody would do that. But the bottom line is they're always about something other than the gospel. They want to put something ahead of people getting saved. Here Paul tells us how to deal with them. He says, ignore them. Let them go. Let them go. Paul says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Paul says, what they're doing is evil. That's what he calls it. He says, but I know what you're doing is good. Ignore them. God's going to crush them under your foot. That's what Paul says. You know what? That's hard to do. It's really hard to do because you have all these amazing people that love Jesus. There's this group of people that want nothing more than people to get saved. And there are these other people with their own agendas and their own appetites. It's so easy to get upset. It's so easy to be taken back, to get discouraged because you think, why can't you just get along? Why is it that you want to focus on something other than getting people saved? I don't know. But Paul says, ignore them. And I think the reason he says that is because when you're dealing with that all the time, it just drains your strength. 
It's so discouraging when you're dealing with nonsense all the time because there's these people that want nothing but to create division. Again, Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen to open the eyes of the people and they're going to see this unscriptural position these people are are taking and they're going to lose their following. Believe me though, I know it hurts. It hurts when you're sold out for the gospel and there's people that want to just stop people from getting saved. Continue reading, look in verse 21. Paul says, Timothy, my fellow worker greets you, as do Lucius and Jason and Sociopater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is the host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Aristotus and the, the, the city treasurer and our brother Quartus greets you. Paul closes this letter with those that are with him at this time as he's writing this letter. He starts this, this, this chapter with those that are in Rome. There's this brief little detour of the people that are hurting the gospel that are not on team Jesus. And he closes this letter with the, his brothers in Christ that are standing right with him. This, it's Paul and the gang and they're in the house of, of Gaius. And again, I just have to picture it around the table. And I don't know if this is true, but I see Paul pacing just, just in rapid fire, giving us Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, all the way to chapter 16, telling us these things. And Tertius is feverishly writing down everything Paul says. He mentions a young pastor by the name of Timothy. Paul's going to go ahead and write two letters to this guy who's going to make two books of our Bibles. There's also Lucius and Jason and Sociopater. Sociopater is another one of Paul's relatives. He's mentioned here. I think it's very interesting, but there's six relatives the Apostle Paul mentioned in the closing letters of the, his letter to the Church of Rome. And the final two name, Aristotus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Quartus. All sorts of people from every walk of life together in the church. All these different people from different cultures and different backgrounds, I think some of them are rich. And some of them are likely poor. Some of them Romans, some of them Greek, some of them African, some of them Iranian. Different socioeconomic, different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different, different cultures, all together for the sake of the gospel. And I think that's the point. The point is the church needs everyone And I say that because you know what happens? I think there's someone on the outside and they're looking in. Maybe that's someone on the outside. Maybe they look like me. Maybe they don't look like you. Maybe they have the same skin color as you. Maybe they don't. Maybe they have similar looking bank accounts. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're highly educated or uneducated. Maybe something. But they're on the outside of the church. And I guarantee you they're looking inside the church and going, it's kind of weird. All these different people that look different, that think different, that talk different, but yet they're together. And I have to think that they're not only curious, but they're just a little bit envious. And I say they're envious because they want in, but they're not brave enough to say, I want in. Maybe they just need a friendly Christian. Somebody who loves Jesus to get up from a place like this and to leave this place and to go to them. And to walk up to them and say, hi, my name's John. I'm Craig. My name's Kyle. My name's Stacy. Can I tell you about Jesus? 
The Jesus that saved me, can I tell you about him? Because there's a bunch of us, we go to this place and people call it church. And what we do when we get there, we talk about Jesus, we sing songs to Jesus, we, 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 we just want to worship Jesus and we've been praying for you. And we hope that you come to know the Jesus that, that we know. Because he's the God that came to save us. And again, maybe you look like me, maybe you don't. Maybe your bank account's similar, maybe it's not. Maybe you're educated, maybe you're not. But let's all come together and let's worship Jesus. Because God saved us and now he wants to save others through us. And God has equipped us to do the ministry of the church. Now he wants the church to go out and change the world. And now as believers, we're obligated to do just that. One more bit of application for us. This isn't outright said, but I believe it's implied by this text. Have you ever had, heard somebody say, you know what? I can be just as good as Christian without the church. It's not true. It's simply not true. There's so many Christians today, they're like spiritual orphans. They're children of God, but they don't have a family to love them. They don't have a family to serve. You know, I think we all agree that babies grow best when they're in a family. When there's children in the world that don't have a family, you know what we want to do? We want to put them in a family. A family that's going to love that baby, that, that child, and help them grow up and keep them safe and love them. Why? Because kids grow best when they're connected to a family. So if you're a disconnected child of God, you're outside the will of God. You need a church family. If you're disconnected, you need to be connected, not just membership. You need to be serving, you need to be loving, you need to be growing. That's what church is about. It's a family, it's a family that's devoted to one another, that we're going to die to self, we're going to live for Jesus, we're going to do that in service to each other, to love each other, and to be the church outside the walls of this building. When a family cares for you, and you care for a family, what happens is you're more, more devoted to your family than you are yourself. You do that in love and service, right? Well, God wants all his kids to be a part of a church connected to his family, but it begins by being adopted by God. You don't know what I'm talking about. You need to know what I'm talking about. Because the Bible teaches that we're all spiritual orphans. We all belong to the devil. But Jesus has come... And he's paid for our, 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 our sins on the cross. And when you place faith in him, you're adopted into God's family. If you've never done that, I would beg you to do that now. That there must come a moment in your spiritual life where you recognize that I'm separated God from, from my sins, but yet Jesus came and he paid for my, my sins on that cross. And the Bible has this amazing promise that whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never cried out to God to save you, I beg you to do that now. Say, dear God, I am a sinner and my sin separates me from you, but yet you still love me. You love me in my most wicked God. Save me from my sins. I give you my life. And I pray this in the perfect name of Jesus Christ. Amen.